there were three things in the ark. Right. There was leftover manna, which was the bread come down from heaven. Yep. Right. There was the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, so God's word. word. And then there was the staff of Aaron, representing the high priesthood, and all of which are now inside of Mary, the new high priest, the new, the, the eternal word of God, now made flesh, and the bread come down from heaven are all within Mary. Mary, what was tradition say? She's probably 13, 14? We could probably estimate something like that, which is young. If she is found to be with child, to be pregnant, before she has actually come together with her husband, the only natural course of events is that she will be stoned. We'd like to thank the National Shrine of Our Lady of Champion for sponsoring today's episode. The National Shrine preserves the peaceful grounds of the first and only approved Marian apparition site in the United States. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeff Cavins. Welcome to the Bible Timeline Show. Well, we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, and here we are. We're in the messianic fulfillment. We're going to look at Jesus, and we're going to look at Mary. We're going to look at just so many wonderful things that happen in this period and also in the church, in the period of the church. And uh, I know that a lot of people have questions about certain aspects of the messianic fulfillment, particularly Mary. And I want to kind of lay down a foundation of a kind of a principle that's really important to get when we look into the New Testament and how it relates to the old, something that, frankly, I didn't know for years and years that you really should do, and that is to try to connect the old with the new. I pray that you'll open up your hearts and you will receive today some wonderful, wonderful teaching about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and what her role is in the church today. It's fantastic. In fact, we're going to look with Dr. Scott Powell about various aspects of the Blessed Virgin Mary in the New Testament, and I think you're going to be amazed at the connections that are made here and the practical benefit of having a mother, a spiritual mother, given to you at the foot of the cross with John. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. I'm so glad to have you on the show and, and to talk about the messianic fulfillment. Yeah. You know, when we get to the messianic fulfillment, uh, we normally think about, okay, we're just going to talk about Jesus. And in the Bible timeline, The Great Adventure, we spend a lot of time talking about Jesus, and we kind of slip Mary in there a little bit. So we thought today what we do is we'll focus on her so that people get a better understanding yeah. of her, because I don't know of, of many people who are so misunderstood. Yeah, you know, that's right. In, this, that's right. in the scriptures. So we want to we'll talk about that. A little bit about your background, though. Yeah. Bring me up to speed. What, what's been happening in your life? And... What are you studying and all that? Oh, man. Well, I, like you said, I teach at the St. John Vianney Theological Seminary. I love it there. It's sort of a relatively new gig for me. I've only been there about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. um, I love being able to work with our future priests. I, I teach scripture. I teach the Bible. And I've taught it in a, different, in a bunch of different capacities. And I love actually teaching the people who will be pastoring people. I'm with you. I love that, being involved with future priests. Yeah, and it's 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 not an abstract intellectual exercise. It's mm -hmm. actually something that they will be ministering with. And so I love that. Uh, I spent years doing ministry at the University of Colorado up in Boulder and running something called the Aquinas Institute. I taught some classes at CU. Um, and again, I loved that environment, mm -hmm. but being hands-on with the men who will be our future priests is just a yeah. dream come true. So we do that, uh, run this adventure program with my wife, Camp Wojtyla. We're just... Uh, um, we're in our, I think, our 17th year taking young people out into the 17th wilderness. 17th year? I know. You, 
Well, would you start? And I'm only 19. Nine? Yeah, no, I was two when we started it. Was so <laughs> yeah. is uh, Pope uh, John Paul II the Great? Is he uh, was right. he a hero of yours? Absolutely. And we we made a conscious decision to call it Camp Wojtyla rather than Camp JP2 or Camp John Paul II because we wanted to capture kind of a moment in his life where culture was confusing. Yep. There were a lot of voices trying to lie and lead young people away from the truth about who they are. And so Carol Wojtyla, Father Carol, and then Bishop Wojtyla would take them into the wilderness, into the mountains where they could hear God's voice a little more clearly. Mm -hmm. And so we've really taken that on. We want to take these young people into the mountains. This is what Jesus does, right? Whenever mm -hmm. Jesus is about to enter into one of his big moments in his public ministry, he'll go off to the mountains or off to the wilderness to pray, to prepare yeah. himself. And so we, we really try to, to be in the spirit of that. Well, we're going to look at the uh, messianic fulfillment, and as I said, we normally would, you know, I think delve into Jesus completely in this period, but we go into it so much in the Bible timeline, yeah. those studies, that I thought it would be nice to focus in on Mary and just really go deep into this and, and you know, listen to some of what you have to say about her role in the New Testament. Uh, she doesn't say much. She does not say much. We don't see her a whole lot. Right. But yet she is there in such a powerful way. And sometimes you have to you have to study it a little bit and That's then right. you you get it. That's right. You know, you That's absolutely right. you absolutely get it. Well, give me a, just a little bit of a synopsis of of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, we've come to the New Testament now. Yeah. Jesus has has uh, is gonna come on the scene here, but Mary. Yeah, well, um, one of the things that we were talking about beforehand is one of these titles that was given to Mary, and it's, mm -hmm. it's used periodically, that also carries a lot of baggage and some some mis, uh, misunderstanding and some confusion. So Mary is sometimes called the co uh, the co redemptrix mm -hmm. or the co redeemer, which again for a lot of people, well, the first time I heard it, I was like, whoa, what, what do you mean? Co like I, I love Mary, I think she's important, I want to reverence her, and I want to ask her to pray for me, but co redeemer, like that seems a bit much, right? And I think part of it is. Uh, you know, in English, when you say co, you know, I'm the co-founder with my wife of this program back in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're, we're equal in that in a certain way. But um, we don't mean equality with God. We're not saying Mary is God or like mm -hmm. you said in the introduction that, you know, somehow she gave birth, you know, she predates God or something like that. Right. Um, but co in English can be misleading, but in the Latin it's just cum, which means simply with. Mm -hmm. And so what we mean is that Mary cooperates with God in his work of redemption. And when we hear the word redemption and thinking about the big picture, the whole timeline, the whole story that we've been going through, when we hear the word redemption, the thing that my mind goes first to, because even that term, right, is is loaded to some degree. I think it, it's confusing, theological, weighty, our redemption. What does that mean? There's all this theology behind it. But when I hear that term, the first thing I think of is the Exodus story, right? Which I think seems to be Jesus and the New Testament writer's framework for what redemption is. That God redeemed Israel mm -hmm. out of slavery in Egypt. He came to set them free. One of my favorite saints, uh, he's a blessed, I suppose. His, his name is Pierre Toussaint. I don't know if you know his story. He's a Haitian slave hmm. who moved to New York with his slave owner, um, and they fell into dire straits. He became a barber and a hairdresser and earned enough money to actually save the family who had enslaved him from their financial ruin and then start buying other people out of slavery. He redeemed them. He wow. redeemed the one who had become his wife. And he ended up starting an orphanage and caring for these people financially 
purchasing them out of these Amazing. slavery situations. And that's what the word redemption really originally meant. It was an economic mm -hmm. word to buy someone out of slavery, which is what God does through Moses and through Aaron in the Exodus period to bring them out of slavery mm -hmm. into freedom. Right? Which is how Jesus frames his ministry in the transfiguration. Remember, he says that I'm going to, what, what he and uh, Elijah and Moses were talking about on the Mount of Transfiguration was the exodus mm -hmm. that he was going to have in Jerusalem. The act of setting us free, not from you know, political or geographic slavery, but of the slavery to sin and evil and the mm -hmm. evil one who has tried to take us and, and the original sin that stains all of our lives. That's what he's doing. But just as God had co-workers in the exodus, mm -hmm. Jesus has co-workers, right? And that act of redemption, the act of Jesus becoming incarnate is in co-relation with Mary's yes, yeah. saying, I will cooperate with the work of the divine in this, no matter what the consequences. Which we call that yes, uh, some people know that as fiat. The fiat. Let's start with Theotokos. Let's start with Ephesus for a moment in, the, okay. in that first, uh, really that big establishment that yeah. she is the mother she is the mother of God. Talk to me about that a little bit. Then we're going to go down the road starting with the Annunciation. Yeah, the, the thing that strikes me most about uh, the Council of Ephesus is where they chose to have that council. So it, it's believed by tradition uh, that Mary may have spent her final days on earth in Ephesus, right? But as I understand it, it overlooks one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is the temple to the goddess Artemis, who right. is prominent in the, the Greco-Roman world, who had certain titles, right? Such as the uh, divine virgin, the mother of all living, yeah. right? Um, the queen of heaven and earth. And I imagine mm -hmm. Mary, and I'm being imaginative, but I imagine Mary with a little cup of coffee every morning, walking out and overlooking this temple to the mother of all living and the mm -hmm. queen of heaven and earth and praying over this city and over this place as, uh, you know, just as Jesus, you know, takes on these titles that were reserved culturally for Caesar and Caesar alone, right? The Christos, the, the king, the emperor, the ruler, the Lord. So too Mary takes on these titles that were falsely attributed to false gods yeah. and people who were not God. So I think the wisdom and the beauty of the church in having this council mm -hmm. in that place is not to be lost. Yeah. Pause there for a second because you bring up something that I, I think I think there is something to be said about it, and that is this. People will, will see that. You know, they'll say, well, Artemis was in Ephesus. Right. Ephesus was this center of magic yeah, and that's right. you know, all of that. And they, they worshiped Artemis. Mm. Then the Blessed Virgin Mary comes around and they'll say, oh, you guys are copying or right. you are, you're Christianizing these, these false gods, right? right? right. Now, what I, what I think about that, I think, well, did it ever dawn in anyone that they might have gotten it wrong? Absolutely. And they created a false, yeah. you know, it's like Caesar, yeah, son that's of right. God, that's right. Pax Romana, he ushered in the Evangelion. That's right. Well, didn't they say, well, Jesus comes by and copies that? Did it ever dawn on you that Jesus is and that's not the real? And that there's a human longing for these things. Mm -hmm. We want someone whose birth is the good news. We, yeah. Because of who we are as human beings, we want a mother. Yeah. We want a queen. We want a king. We want a God who will save us and bring us everlasting yeah. peace. Yeah. And we have all these you know, false versions of them or, or inadequate versions over history. Mm -hmm. But the job of the church and the task of the church has often been, been to find where there is some shred of truth and capitalize on that. Find what is true and then reveal 
reveal. I mean, look at Paul, St. Paul, when he goes to the temple of the unknown God. Mm -hmm. He's like, you build a temple to a God, you don't know his name, let me tell you his name. Because you want something that's true, and so I will reveal to you what that thing is that you didn't know about. So in Ephesus, they made the decision, which I mentioned mentioned earlier, that it, it was really about Jesus. Yeah. You know, and the heresies right. that were going around. And when she when they said she's the mother of God, that's the emphasis. Yes. He's God. She's the mother of God. Right. Which is which is ironic that the debates that kind of came centuries later were so different than really what this was about, yeah. which was the heresies about who Jesus was. But what this what this teaching really shows that I, I just find if we take a step back and really consider what's happening. Yes, I mean, I, I don't. I think the the logic you walked through earlier of you know Jesus is God. She gave birth to Jesus. She is the mother of God. That that's consistent. There is a logic to this, mm-hmm. but it also does. I mean, part of why I think human beings have struggled with this is the audacity of God to actually become the kind of thing that cries and has a diaper and that you hold in your arms, the humility of God, the self-lowering, like Paul talks about in Ephesians, right, to the, the oh, Philippians, rather, the canonic hymn, he empties himself mm-hmm. and becomes the kind of creature who is born to a human being, to a person, to a woman. Yeah. The audacity of that, I think, um, is hard for human beings to swallow. Because humanity has been taught, even, again, I mentioned the Exodus period. Humanity had been taught for so long that the divine gods, these powerful forces beyond you, they are to be feared, they are to be awed, you are to be subject to them, and you are to remember how pathetic you are compared to these capricious god masters that are around you. Mm-hmm. And then Genesis mm-hmm. comes in, it's just Betty Sheath. In the beginning, there is one God who created in the heavens and the earth, and you were in his image and likeness. Mm-hmm. And then it goes so far as to say that same God chose to be born as a baby yeah. and then give himself <laughs> up for you. I mean, yes, there's the theological point of the Theotokos, which has some nuance to it. But then there's simply the the human struggle with the fact that how can I be loved in that intimate way by a God who is so great? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the heart of the struggle is. Oftentimes I hear people struggle with the Eucharist and they'll say, Jeff, how can you believe that bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ? Doesn't that feel like that's going a little bit too far? And I'll I'll ask them, I'll say, listen, you're most of the way there already. You believe that God became a baby. I mean, are you serious? Give me a break, you know? You're you're there almost uh, completely there. Let's just, come on in. That's right. Okay, so let's go through uh, the the life of Mary and look at some of these teachings. We begin with the Annunciation. The Annunciation, which uh, only comes to us in the Gospel of Luke, right? And it's Mm -hmm. believed uh, that that Luke actually spent some time with Mary in those latter years. And again, I have this this fun image of of the Blessed Mother telling these stories to St. Luke and, you know, I'm quickly jotting all these things down. But the story of the Annunciation I find really beautiful because it comes right on the heels of another kind of Annunciation given to a priest in the temple at the hour of sacrifice about this great Messiah who is going to come and save Israel. The big announcement, right, comes to Zechariah the priest who really is told about his son John the Baptist who will be the forebearer, the one who will prepare the way. And then the big announcement doesn't come in the temple, doesn't come in the capital city, doesn't come to the big, important, socially speaking person. It comes to the lowly maiden in the backwoods town in the middle of nowhere that seems forgotten. Mm -hmm. That's where Gabriel gives the big primary announcement that you are going to give birth to the Savior. You are going to do these things. And he, he poses it 
um, in a way that Mary can actually say yes, because God doesn't force himself on us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's been hymns written about how all of, all of uh, heaven and earth hangs in the balance for this moment that Mary is given a choice. Will you say yes to this? And the thing, there's, there's so much we can say. There's so much for us to unpack about this. But Mary, what does tradition say? She's probably 13, 14. Mm-hmm. We could probably estimate something like that, which is young. This is a mm-hmm. young girl. She's betrothed to be married, which means that she's sort of legally contracted marriage, but they haven't come together as husband and wife. Sure. Um, if she is found to be with child, to be pregnant, before she has actually come together with her husband, the only natural course of events is that she will be stoned. And I have to think that Mary knows exactly what she's, she's not mere, for a long time I thought of Mary's fiat as this beautiful acceptance of some embarrassment and some, you know, dirty looks, you know, you're pregnant and you don't have a husband yet and it's going to be difficult and I'm young and childbearing is hard to begin with. And I thought, well, this is, this is all these things that Mary bears. But no, the more I've started to reflect on it, and I hope this isn't taking it too far, the more, the more I've started to reflect on it, Mary is being, proposed, being posed with a situation that I think in her mind can only lead to certain death. I will mm-hmm. be killed for this. I know that. I've seen it happen. And I'm going to say yes to God anyway because I know he has a way out of the impossible. And what seems impossible for us, God has a possible. So I will say yes, be it done unto me according to thy word. Um, when the angel says to her, the Lord is with you, right? That's almost code in the Old Testament for, hey, you're going to have to do something really, really difficult. The Lord says it to (laughs) Jeremiah and Moses and Elijah and so many others when they're going to have a task that is beyond them. And so Mary's response of reverence and and a a kind of fear of, you know, holy fear of, well, this is a big task. Her fiat, again, at the risk of, of stretching this too much, her fiat is saying, all I see forward for me in a worldly sense is death but I believe in a God who somehow is beyond death Mm -hmm. and can get me out of this. So I will say yes to this impossibility. And then she moves forward. But this is the Annunciation. Mm -hmm. So she gives birth to Jesus, to Mm -hmm. the Redeemer. She says yes. She is co-Redeemer in the fact that she stands first in line of those who do the will of God, of, of her son. But then on another level, this moment that the angel appears to her and his greeting is an odd one. And this is, again, there's some Catholic teaching built into this. His greeting when he says, hail you who have been filled with grace. That's my translation. Um, It's the Greek word kekiritomine, right? You who have been filled. Some translations say, oh, favored one, which is not quite capturing Mm -hmm. the essence of what the angel is saying. He's saying, hail, and he gives her a title. He literally is, is giving her a new title which is you who have been totally and completely filled with grace. It's in, in the Greek language, which is what the New Testament was originally written in. It's in what's called the perfect tense. So we have, for the most part, three tenses in English, past, present, and future. Greek also has a perfect, many languages have the perfect tense, which is something that was done in the past, but to its completion, it's, it's done. Mm. So she has been totally and completely filled with grace. So meaning there is no room for anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, we reverence Mary because she is filled with grace. And what that means to us is that she, she was conceived immaculately. In other words, freed from the stain of original sin, which is simply to say that she was saved from sin by Jesus. Just mm-hmm. like you were, just like same I was, grace. same yeah. grace, except preemptively. Mm-hmm. And you, you've heard the analogy, I'm sure, a million times, right? Somebody is... Uh, somebody falls into a pool, somebody who can't swim, a child who can't swim falls into a pool. 
I rush over and I pull the child out of the pool, save them from drowning, right? I've saved the child, correct? Right. Right. In the same sense, you could see that child about to fall into the pool and catch them before they do it. And in a, certain, in a very real sense, that's still a saving act. I've sure. saved them from falling into the pool. Right. So Mary is saved from sin. Again, not by anything she did, not because of her divinity, but she is saved from the stain of original sin by Jesus yeah. so that she can be the Ark of the Covenant, the, the one who will bear the Redeemer of the world inside of her. Yeah, and we'll get to that. Yeah. We know what we're doing is we're, we're kind of going through the messianic fulfillment by way of Mary. Yeah. And that's, a, that's an interesting tour to yeah. go on, starting with the Annunciation and then moving into the Visitation. The visitation yeah. And by the way, the, you know, these, these mysteries, are, these mysteries are mysteries of the Rosary. That's right. You know, we pray them. That's right. So we're going to move now from the Annunciation to the Visitation, which is where the Blessed Virgin Mary comes from up north, down into the hill country of Judea, right. and she's going to visit Elizabeth. It's funny that you say it that way, that we're taking the, how did you say it? We're looking at the messianic fulfillment through Mary. Yeah, through a tour of her life. In a certain sense, that's how the Gospel of Luke does it. And the Gospel of Luke is the, the Gospel that we have the most information about Mary. But before Jesus really shows up, before you really get anything about Jesus, you have two chapters about Mary and all these things that are yeah. happening. So it, it is a, a very Lucan perspective on doing that. Yeah. So Mary is told by the angel that she's going to bear the son. Mm -hmm. She gives her great fiat. I, I see the consequence of what I'm saying yes to, but I'm saying yes anyway because I believe who God is, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and then when it says, I'm in chapter, let's see, where am I? Chapter 1, verse uh, 35. It says, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that's a really important line because what, and we alluded to this a minute ago, but I want to unpack it. What the angel says is that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The only other time or the very prominent other time that that word overshadow is used in the Old Testament is after Moses builds the tabernacle, the, the vessel that will hold the physical, tangible presence of God, mm -hmm. not under the appearance of bread and wine, but the, under the appearance of smoke, the Shekinah, which was believed to be in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. That's how that's described. When the tabernacle is filled, it says the power of the Most High will overshadow it. And so in a certain sense, this is Mary. It's the being, same language. It's then. the same language. So Mary is the new ark. Mm -hmm. She's the new tabernacle that will hold the presence of God. And it says, uh, therefore, the child to be born to you will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month for who who was called barren. So she's six months into her pregnancy. John Paul II, St. John Paul II talks about uh, how this demonstrates something about Mary's heart, that she's just received this really difficult information, this, this thing that she's going to have to carry with her. And what's her first response is to go serve someone else, to go serve her cousin. Mm -hmm. I also wonder, I, I don't want to diminish that at all, but I also wonder that if this is also Mary's opportunity to take some refuge. Because before too long, she's going to start to show. Sure. And if that's true, people around her are going to know what's going on. And again, there's some consequence. So I think... She is going to serve her cousin, but I think there's also a place of refuge there where she can be protected. So she makes the trek up to the hill country where Zechariah, who was introduced in the previous chapter, or just you know, earlier in that chapter as the priest in the temple, she goes up to the hill country and it says, let's see, verse 41, it says, When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, 
the babe inside of her leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed, the word for exclamation in the Greek is often used for Levitical priests before the temple, before the Ark of the Covenant. So there's, Luke is embedding some language in there. She exclaims, and she is of a priestly family. She's not an ordained priest, but her husband is. Mm -hmm. And she's of the priestly line. She says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So chapter one of Luke is where we get the first half of the Hail Mary prayer, essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I love this line. Um, And we just have to take a second here. To my knowledge, maybe you can correct me, Jeff. To my knowledge, there's only three places in the whole Bible where that terminology appears. Blessed are you among women, or someone who is blessed among women. And uh, they are a woman named Judith in the Old Testament, mm-hmm. a woman named Jael. I should probably take her first. Jael's first in Genesis. Judith is second. And then Elizabeth says it about Mary. Yep. And the common feature is this. Uh, Jael shows up... Uh, during a time when Israel is at war with one of their many enemies and they're fighting a battle. And there is a a foreign occupying general who, I think he gets separated from his troops and he takes refuge in the tent of this woman who surely he feels like he can overpower and she will kind of take care of him. He can find some refuge there, this Israelite woman. And he takes refuge there and he says, you got to protect me. And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, fine. Remember, she tucks him into bed. She brings him a warm glass of milk. And then she shoves a tent stake through his head. Mm -hmm. And then she basically (laughs) says, hey, everyone, I've defeated the the enemy. To which they respond, blessed are you among women. Uh, I think it's Deborah, it's in Judges, right? So it's Deborah, the judge, who says, blessed are you among women because you've killed our enemy by shoving a tent stake through his head. Then later on, Je- uh, Judith, um, during the time of the, around the time of the, um, the Babylonian exile, right? Their yep. town was taken over by an enemy occupying force and there's a man named Holofernes who was sort of lording this occupation over them and Judith, you know, kind of produces herself up and kind of makes her fall in love with her and gets him a little tipsy on some wine and then takes his own sword and cuts off his head and announces to everyone that, hey, I've set us free from this occupation. And the response, of course, is, blessed are you among women. So the only, to my knowledge, the only times that that is used is when a woman strikes a death blow to an enemy of the people of God. Mm-hmm. And then somehow, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth says to her, blessed are you among women, mm-hmm. which has got to take us back to the, uh, the, the proto-evangelium, it's called, the first telling of the gospel way back in Genesis 3, yeah. where after the fall of original sin, It says that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman and her seed will crush your head. Mm -hmm. And now Elizabeth has the audacity to say these words to Mary. You know, I've heard some people talk about uh, this visitation in relationship to another event in the Old Testament that parallels. Yeah, absolutely. And that would be 2 Samuel 6. 2 Samuel 6, yep. David bringing the ark into Jerusalem. Yeah. Talk to me about the parallels there because this is... You know, if you've if you've never read the Bible before, or you you are um, you're not real you know privy to these Old Testament stories, yeah. it'll blow your mind when you see the the, the similarity. Yeah, the similarities on that one are, are striking. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like you said, it's Second Samuel six, and this is the moment. Let's see what's what's happened so far. This is the moment when David finally, I think, in the previous chapter, he became king of all of mm-hmm. Israel. Previously, it was just a few of the tribes and. People had different allegiances, uh, and now he's king of all of Israel, and he's decided to make his capital. And we'll find out in the next chapter that 
It's the first time in a long time that Israel's not at war. They're not battling with anyone. And there's peace and shalom in the land. So David decides to bring the tabernacle up to the new capital city in Jerusalem. And on the way there, a number of things happen. As they start to bring it with this grand procession on a brand new cart that they had just built, um, they're dancing before the ark and somebody actually <laughs> touches it wrong and is struck dead because there's a... There's a <laughs> a reverence and an awe to the vessel that holds the presence of God. Um, and it says that David gets a little bit freaked out. And so it stays for a while, three months to be exact, uh -huh. in the home of a guy named Obededom, who's in the hill country of Judea. And while it stays in the hill country of Judea, the house of a man named Obededom, it says great blessing came upon this man's house because the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God dwelt there. And afterwards, it said David leapt before the ark, that famous scene where he dances and leaps before the ark before it's brought up to Jerusalem. And there's so many parallels here between, again, the child the, leaping in the womb. The child leaping in the womb, like David leapt before the ark, the ark being brought to the hill country, staying there for three months, this exclamation of Elizabeth. But the, the story of the movement of the Ark of the Covenant is an exact parallel of Luke 1. Yep. Um, what's cool about the Ark of the Covenant, though, yes, there, the presence of God was contained. But the other thing that was in the Ark, there were three things in the Ark, mm -hmm. right? There was, what was that? It was number one, it was the uh, some leftover manna from the Exodus time. Some, uh, I don't know if, what kind of Tupperware they had back then, but there was leftover manna, which was the bread come down from heaven. Yep. Right? There was the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, so God's word. word. And then there was the staff of Aaron, representing the high priesthood, all of which were in the Ark of the Covenant. And all so, three of those were key to the life of Israel. Exactly at right. The center, Absolutely. center of their life. And all of which are now inside of Mary, the new high priest, the new, the, the eternal word of God mm -hmm. now made flesh and the bread come down from heaven are all within Mary. Isn't that amazing? It's an incredible, again, thinking of the inspiration of the gospel writer to be putting these pieces together in the story is, is mind you, you don't think that's a coincidence? I, do. <laughs> I sure hope <laughs> not. <laughs> well, so quickly then you have this, you have the, the visitation, yeah. you have the ark being brought in 2 Samuel 6. Uh, they, they, both, both cases talk about going up into the hill country right. of Judea. Both of them talk about three months, the house of Obed-Edom, uh, Mary with Elizabeth yeah. for three months. Uh, both of them, how, David, how is it that the ark of the Lord has come to me, Elizabeth? Yeah. How is That's it right. that the That's mother right. of my Lord has come to me? And, uh, what else am I missing, missing there? The, in both cases, it's the ark. Yeah. And the early church saw that. Yeah. And John saw that yeah, when he right. wrote Revelation. That's right. That's right. And so when, when in John in John telling about this revelation, he he kind of goes from uh, everything that's happening on the earth hmm. to what's happening in heaven. Earth, right. heaven, right. earth, heaven. He says, I looked up into heaven and I saw I saw the ark. Yeah. And then he describes Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yeah. Absolutely right. It's, Crown it's, of 12, it's 12 stars. It's amazing stuff. It's it amazing. is amazing. Let's move on to the birth of Jesus. Yeah. Um, we should say one, one last thing before we go on, when, when, because it's thematic for Mary's life, mm -hmm. which is going to be what sets the stage for the Redeemer and for Jesus. When this happens to Mary, uh, she sings her Magnificat, right? My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices mm. in God, my yep. Savior. The whole of the Magnificat. Now, I mean, number one, I think actually even that is riffing on the, the, the song of Hannah when she is given this child that she's mm -hmm. prayed for, which becomes a, a bit of a foreshadowing. But it's also about a bunch of ironic reversals. 
In, in Mary's Magnificat, things are never as they seem to be. In the birth of Jesus, things are never what you'd expect them to be, right? The lowly are lifted up, the mighty are brought down low. Um, and this is telling the story, and it, it's almost like an overture for the whole story of Jesus' birth. All the things that we expect about kings and about prophecy and about power and might, it's all being flipped upside down on its head. And Mary's Magnificat is kind of the overture to that story. No, that's Smack good. Right in the middle. So now we come to the birth of Jesus, which yeah. is uh, uh, one of the main points, of course, of the messianic fulfillment. Jesus is born, and this would not have happened without Mary. That's right. And it, it's funny how sparse the Gospel of Luke actually is about the actual birth. Mm -hmm. Because it spends almost more time, Luke spends almost more time, not almost, it is more time, talking about what's happening in the bigger world. And starting in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. Right, The census, we've heard the story before mm -hmm. probably. The first enrollment, Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Everybody went out to be enrolled. Joseph also had to go from Galilee and Nazareth to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem. Um, again, we're going to have very sparse telling of the actual birth itself. But what, one of the things Luke seems to be doing is setting up how powerful Caesar Augustus appeared to be at that time. Mm -hmm. He's got the power to make a proclamation so that the whole world has to stop what they're doing and acquiesce to what he wants. Mm -hmm. And Luke is setting up the story that way, again, to show what real power is mm -hmm. and where power is not. Part of Caesar Augustus's greatness and what makes him so beloved Yes, you know, he is declared son of God, the Pax Romana, but he also brings in economic prosperity because he has established the largest system of roads yep. ever established, the largest port system so that they can bring in trade, which is going to be exactly what God needs to spread the gospel. Yeah. So unbeknownst I, I, to him, he's preparing through yeah, his power. I've thought about that so many times that, you know, in, I think it's, it's in Galatians, it says that yeah. he was born in the, in, the, in the fullness of time. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's right. The perfect time. Perfect time. Greek is the world language. Yeah, there's one language. Roman roads everywhere. Everywhere. Port Showtime. Yeah. It's <laughs> perfect. I love it. Yeah, that's good. And unbeknownst to him, that's what his power is doing. It's preparing the way for the gospel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is incredible. So this this uh, this child is born, Jesus, uh, yes. Emmanuel, God with us. Yeah. There, there's great debate, and we don't have to get into it here, about exactly where Jesus was born. It's believed that there was there's a cave in Bethlehem that's mm -hmm. believed to be the traditional site. Um, it talks, you know, the, the, our common uh, kind of popular memory of this, you know, it says there was, in my translation, verse 7 says, there was no place for them in the inn. Um, you know, the word is, is katalima, and I don't think we're actually talking about like a, a holiday inn or a, a best western here. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> but, um, Name them all. There's, <laughs> there was no place for them in the place. The, the th here's, the, here's the thing. And I've, I've been reflecting on this and trying to think about this. And there, there is a wrestling match here with the story of Christmas. Because Jesus is born, yes, to this uh, woman who says yes, who gives her fiat, who stands first in line of those who would do the, do the will of God, although she is humble and lowly and from a backwoods town. But she's also marrying, marrying into the most powerful family in Israel, albeit living underground or in secrecy or hiding out or whatever. But Joseph is the heir to the throne. He's the heir to the Davidic throne, which knowing that Herod is in control and Caesar Augustus are in control, surely they can't speak openly about that. But I would have to imagine that he knew that, that his family knew that, that his kinspeople knew that. And so if you're living in the time of Joseph and everybody has to go back to their hometowns to be registered because of a decree of Caesar, where people, I have to presume, know, at least enough, 
know that he is the heir to the throne of David. To cast that guy out? To say, no, we don't have, I mean, can you imagine a family member coming to your house on Thanksgiving? And, you know, somebody's in the guest room and you're like, well, I'm sorry, I don't have a corner of carpet or a couch that you can sleep on. <laughs> I've got no room. I just can't, even a family member I didn't like, it's hard to imagine I wouldn't give them a couch to sleep on in dire straits. And then add to it, oh, their wife is nine months pregnant and about to give birth. Sorry, yeah. don't know what to do. Um, it's, it, it, it reminds us, I think, of the worldly shame that Jesus is born into in a certain sense. Uh, in the Magnificat, she talks about how the mighty will be cast down and the lowly lifted up. Actually, both of those things are happening in the person of Joseph, mm -hmm. who is mighty in a certain sense, and he's being cast down because of the Messiah, because of Jesus. He's being stripped of this worldly identity in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. And they're cast out, and he's born into a certain kind of outcast. Again, regardless of the circumstances of the actual birth, someone gave him a cave, maybe it's like the equivalent of a garage, fine, you can give birth in there. Oh, heir to the throne. Oh, nine-month pregnant woman. It's kind of unimaginable circumstances, but the thing that that does for me is say something about how Jesus will then lead his life. Because I have to imagine then, eventually they're going to go back to Nazareth, right? They're going to live their lives again. And I have to imagine that Joseph and Mary will get dirty looks in the market. And they're not going to get invited to block parties or, you know, because everyone knows this thing about them, this right. cloud hanging over them. And I just imagine Jesus growing up with a mom and a dad who know how to deal with people giving him dirty looks, of disrespecting them, of casting them out on behalf of their faithfulness to the will of God. Yeah, these are things you don't think of too much. You right. Know? And part of it's because we just, uh, we beautify the entire scene yeah. at Christmas. And right, right. <laughs> A big inflatable version of this thing, yeah, right. which, is, which is fine. I mean, it's, it's, that's good. It should be in our collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. But there's something about the hidden life of Jesus and the hidden life of the Holy Family that just makes me wonder. I wonder how much Jesus observed his family, his mom and dad dealing with people bad-mouthing them, dealing with casting them out, because that will be his whole ministry. Yep. is dealing with that. And in his humanity, he's formed by these very real human can, can parents. Can you just hear, hear the Blessed Virgin Mary saying to Jesus, the young, the young boy, let me tell you how I handled, yeah. how I handled this, you right? know? Isn't that when, beautiful? Yeah, and, and to, to think of the first moments where she held Jesus and looked into his eyes, yeah. knowing that this is God. Yeah. This is the yeah. only way this could have happened. Yes. And she's looking yes. at, at God. And I don't think she yes. ever forgot it, to be honest with you. I don't think she ever forgot those first moments with him. And Pope John Paul II, wait, Tia, he, uh, he brings us up in a devotion, a mm. very beautiful devotion, where he wonders, what was it like? Mm. What was it like when Jesus had been taken and he beaten and crucified, rose from the dead in the ascension. And there she was with John. There she was with the disciples. And she heard the words, this is my body given for you. And his, his, his little devotion on that is basically, what was it like for the Blessed Virgin Mary who carried the, the Messiah in her womb inside of her to have him reintroduced into her once again. And he says, and the two hearts beat in harmony. Once again. 
Oh, man. When I read that, That's I was incredible. like, I haven't heard no that. wonder you're a saint, <laughs> you know, but let's move on then. After the birth, then we go to the presentation. For the sake of time, I yeah. want to get through all this. There's so <laughs> yeah, many good yeah. things. The presentation, I'm a little, I'm a little confused. Maybe you can help me on the time frame exactly. It's, it's unclear. So the purification would be, uh, the, the presentation would be 40 days after his birth. So he'd been circumcised on the eighth day. 40 days later, they'd have to go to Jerusalem to present as a firstborn son. He would have to be presented in the temple. I don't know if they're coming from Bethlehem or if they're back in Nazareth. That's a little bit unclear to yeah, me. It is. But regardless, they're they're coming into mm-hmm. Jerusalem um, with complete and total faithfulness to the law. Mm-hmm. Even though they are bearing the new law in their arms, the new word of God, they're being faithful to an old law that is actually on its way out. The beauty of the presentation, what, what's happening in the presentation here in, in the Jewish world and understanding, um, back, and again, if we think back in the timeline, back in, in Genesis, Israel was always from the beginning called to be a priestly nation. And the priests of Israel were meant to be the fathers and the firstborn sons. The fathers would pass it down through primogeniture to their firstborn sons and there would be a priestly identity. That priestly identity, at least in the firstborn sons, is lost in the sin of the golden calf. When Israel has seen God face to face, when they've witnessed what he's done, his redeeming power, Mm -hmm. and still chosen to worship something other than God, out of fear or, or whatever is going on inside of them, they choose to worship someone else. And so God strips from them the priesthood from the firstborn sons and gives it to the Levites, who were the ones who stood up and said, we won't stand for this, we have to do something about it. they slaughter 3,000 people that day in, in righteous indignation, I suppose. Yeah. And they're given the priesthood, which even that story alone, you're like, wow, this, this, uh, there's something imperfect about this priesthood. There's something incomplete about this. And so the Levites have the priesthood. Up through the time of Jesus, the Levites are the priests. Now, the presentation was this act that every family was called to do when they had a firstborn son, to bring that firstborn son, who was supposed to be the priest of the family, up to Jerusalem and make an offering to the Levitical priests, essentially saying, thank you for doing the job that my son was supposed to do and cannot, (laughs) right? Which the irony of the Holy Family doing this, right? And still submitting themselves to this law and, you know, giving their turtle dove, which was the offering of the poor. So we know the Holy Family was poor. Um, It's a beautiful scene of faithfulness. It's a beautiful scene of obedience. But I love that there is a man there, an old man named Simeon, who we we know virtually nothing about him, and another woman named Anna, who we know even less about. But these two prophets... We know where she was from. We know where she was from, but that's about it, right? She was from Asher. Um, And they're waiting. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for God to show up again. Right? They're waiting for God to come back. The whole experience of Israel for so much of salvation history, certainly post-Babylonian exile, is has God abandoned us? Did he leave us? Where is he? Will he ever come back? Does he care about us? Mm-hmm. Which is, it's the human experience, right? Yeah. Is, you know, I don't think we fundamentally in our, our society have a problem of atheism. I think most people believe there's probably something out there. I don't know if it loves me. I don't know if it cares about me. I don't know if it's going to come to be with me. And the experience of Israel is, I don't know if God cares about us anymore. We don't know if he's going to come back. Mm -hmm. And Anna and Simeon are waiting at the temple day after day, year after year, waiting for, what does it say? The uh, consolation. Consolation. There's a reference to Isaiah chapter 40. I was just going to say that, that real quickly, Isaiah is in two parts. Yes, that's right. The bad news and the good news. Yeah, the book of, a book of, uh, uh, whoa. whoa. And then starting with 43, right? 40. 40. Yeah, 40. A consolation. And the consolation is, 
things are looking up. Yeah. And he's waiting yeah. for this, things are looking up, you know? And why are they looking up? Because there's going to be a voice out in the wilderness preparing the way, and then God will show up and he'll make a yeah. route back to Jerusalem. Yeah. And they're seeing, Simeon and Anna, you have this scene about a chapter earlier with the priest Zechariah, who's in, you know, right outside the Holy of Holies, offering the incense, should be well-versed and well, you know, um, full of knowledge about these things. And he recognizes, you know, the angel appears and says, hey, God is doing this thing. And he essentially says, yeah, right. I'll believe it when I see it. I'm not sure I can swallow that right now. And then you have on the other end of that, this old man who's, I don't know if he's getting made fun of or kind of scoffed at or given dirty looks as there's an old man again. And he has the eyes to see what no one else in the time can see. Yep. He has the eyes to see an impoverished, dirty, sweaty, exhausted new family coming in out of the wilderness with their offering of the poor and say, that's it. It's like how that's John the Baptist went exactly at right. the Jordan River. Behold the Behold Lamb. Behold the Lamb. The, the Lamb of God. Well, now, after the presentation, we have basically, uh, I guess theologians would call it the hidden life the of hidden Jesus. Years, yeah. It's the... It's those, you know, between 12 and 30. 30 or so. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, we that's have, right. uh, because Not at much. 12, we see Jesus <laughs> in the temple teaching. That's right. Asking questions. That's right. But then all that other time growing up, it's hidden. What do we know about that time? Not much. <laughs> Not much. We really don't. We, we, uh, there's something beautiful about sort of the private life of the Holy Family mm -hmm. uh, and, and the Holy Spirit almost respecting the family being able to be a family in this way. Mm -hmm. Again, I imagine the Holy Family, the Holy Parents, Mary and Joseph dealing with societal things, Jesus observing them, watching mm -hmm. these things. Just as it says when Mary uh, is at the presentation, Simeon gives her this prophecy, this oracle of a sword that will pierce her heart. And your son is going to be the cause of the rise and the fall of many. And there's going to be a lot of things here. And it's going to hurt you too, Mary is told. And the response to that is that she holds these things in her heart. And I always wonder if during those hidden years, Jesus is holding a lot of things in his heart, watching the Holy Family, watching his father, his quiet diligence, his hard work, mm -hmm. watching his mother's faithfulness, their love, their laughter, I hope, you know, all of these things. And he's holding these things in his heart and they will play themselves out because in his true humanity, they'll play themselves out in his public ministry and in ways that we see. Well, we see uh, the catechism talks about those hidden years yeah. in terms of humility. That's right. That he learned humility, right. but he didn't right. learn humility. He was, it represents his humility. That's right. That's during, right. During that, during right. that time. And you think about, you know, we, we talk about Mary, his mother, yeah. but his stepfather, Joseph, That's right. was a carpenter. Yeah. Now, in the Old Testament, so, uh, uh, Solomon was known as the great builder. That's right. But Jesus said someone greater than, greater than Solomon. Solomon is here. And I, and I can't help but believe that, that Jesus learned something of building from Joseph. He would have had to. Yeah. He would have had to, right? Yeah, with the Blessed yeah. Virgin Mary uh, looking on. And, yep. and this spoke of, of his humility. But then er everything yeah. changes uh, after that when he makes his public ministry announcement in Matthew chapter 3. Yes. He goes from the north down to the river, uh, meets uh, John the Baptist. And he follows the exact route that the exile actually took. He goes yeah. up to Zebulun and Naphtali, to the northernmost parts of Israel where the exile began. Yeah. And he'll slowly actually trace the course of the exile mm -hmm. down to Jerusalem. Eventually. Which is the same course that Elijah took. That's right. Yeah, and that's Elijah right. ended up in 2 Kings 2, right there at the Jordan River. That's where Elijah went up. That's, That's right. where John shows That's up right. dressed like who? Elijah. Elijah. 
Calvin Klein suit and everything. <laughs> yeah. Right. So he's 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 standing right there, and he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world." And yeah. this going up out of the water into the wilderness, yeah. recapitulative history—it's Israel yeah, all right. over again. That's right. Coming out of the water, going into the wilderness. That's Jesus right. begins his public ministry, and the next time we really see the two together is in Cana. Yeah, that's right. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, but the, the spot where we traditionally believe Jesus was baptized is believed to be, elevation-wise, the lowest spot on earth. It right? is. It Talk is. about recapitulative history. He goes yeah. down into you our... You can't get lower than that. Yeah. yeah. And then he comes back up. When I bring pilgrims there, I like to say to them, you know, it, it, you can't get any lower than this. It's all <laughs> uphill from here. You know? And, and, that's, and that's really, really true. It yeah. does speak of his humility exactly. that he begins his public ministry at that low, yeah. low Point. And that is one of two times where we, we hear the Father. That's right. At that in the Transfiguration. Right. Yeah. We hear the Father. So a public ministry begins. Yep. They're back yep. up in Galilee, the little city called Cana. Cana and they yeah. have been invited to a wedding. To a wedding. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny the way that it's only in the Gospel of John that we find the story. Mm -hmm. And I get a kick out of how John frames it. It says, John chapter 2, verse 1, On the third day there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Oh, and Jesus was also invited to the marriage, which is a funny way of framing it, which it's John setting you up to say, this story is going to be a really important story about Mary, mm -hmm. right? Jesus was also there, but I want you to pay attention. It's almost like a, a little literary marker. I want you to pay attention to what the mother is doing. Because one of the things we haven't discussed yet, which just bears noting, because I think we see it here, in the Jewish world, actually other ancient Near Eastern cultures as well, but specifically in Judaism, you see that the role of the mother was really important in terms of the king and the kingdom, right? If Jesus is, what, what is his redemption, his work of redemption? It's to establish the kingdom of God on earth as the Davidic king and as the son of God. All of these things brought into one. But in the ancient world, you know, partially because Israel had a pretty big problem with uh, polygamy and they had the kings often would do things that they ought not have done and had too many wives, you might have a fight over who the queen should be. Well, if there's, a, you know, 10 different options for the queen because the husband or the king has so many wives, what are you going to do? Well, there might be 10 wives, but there's only one mom. Mm -hmm. And so the role of the gabera, right, the queen mother, which again, existed elsewhere outside of Israel. But the role of the queen mother was always distinct because the king only had one mom and she was set aside with a throne to sit at his right hand to actually bear the intercessions of the people of the kingdom because she had the king's ear and he, they knew that she would be listened to. And if you read through, what is it, first and second kings, every time an Israel, a, Jew, a, a king of Judah is mentioned, yep. his mother's mentioned as well. Exactly. Because it's an office. It's in not just this is nice. Even in the rebuke. Yeah, that's you know, right. The, Absolutely. The, the, the rebuke of uh, uh, Jeremiah rebukes the king and, and his, his mother. mother. Yeah. So the wedding at Cana. So there we are. So yeah, so Mary was there and so was Jesus. Uh, it says, um, when the wine failed, <laughs> which is a pretty drastic way to say this, when the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And there's a lot to, to say there. We'll just say a couple of things. When the wine failed, which in the ancient world, in an honor culture, which is what the society was, to run out of wine at your kid's wedding, it's not just a, you know, a social faux pas, it's not just an oversight. This would shame the family from there on out because what it says is you can't even care for your children. You can't even have enough wine for their wedding day. It would have been tremendous hardship on that family. And we don't nothing about the family whose wedding it is. We're only told about Jesus and Mary. 
Um, and so Mary goes to Jesus and he says, they have no wine, which uh, I remember there was, there was a, a, something happened at Camp Foytiwa a number of years ago. We were in crisis mode. We actually had um, a confession night and there was probably 90 high school age girls up on property and we were supposed to have confessions that night and we didn't have any priests. Everybody canceled at the last minute and you know, that's a lot of high school girls and a lot of stuff. And we had one priest with us. He was our chaplain for the week and we're like, all right, Father, it's all on you. What are we going to do? And he said, uh, he's like, we just, because we were stressing out. I was freaking out. I didn't know what to do. And he's like, think of Mary and the wedding feast at Cana. She didn't go freaking out to Jesus. Jesus, what are we going to do? We have to get him some wine. Let's run to the store. Let's do this. Let's do that. She simply just states with serenity, they have no wine. Mm -hmm. So he's like, so we're going to go to the chapel. And we're going to say, Jesus, we have no priests. <laughs> And within an hour, three more priests showed up wow. and they actually came to confession, which is a, a funny story. But I was just, I've always remembered that the way that Mary prays, because the way that I want to pray is I want to freak out and I want to tell Jesus exactly what I need him to do <laughs> rather than say simply, they have no wine. I have no wine in my life. There's so many things in my life where I feel like I have no wine. So they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, oh woman, which there's not much precedent in the New Testament for calling your mom woman. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a, a thing. It's not like a statement that you, you use. It's not a term of endearment. And I think what Jesus is doing is pulling us back to the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis. The woman. Because again, what we see is Mary fulfilling this very particular role, both of the queen mother, but also as the one who is going to help crush the head of the evil one. Mm -hmm. As the new Eve, the new head crusher, the new queen mother, all of these things are kind of wrapped up into this. And so I think Jesus wants our minds pulled back to the beginning of the story. And translations deal differently with this sentence, and grammatically it's difficult in the Greek, but my translation says, oh woman, what have, uh, what have you to do with me? Which is an imperfect translation. English, you know, if you know another language, sometimes languages don't perfectly capture the essence of another. But really the way I like to sort of translate this is, oh woman, do you understand what this has to do with you and with me? In other words, what Jesus seems to be saying to Mary is, if I do the thing that you seem to be proposing, which why would Mary go to him? He's not one of the waiters. He's not a steward. He's not somebody in the family who has control over this. He's a, simply an invited guest to a wedding. Why would she be saying this to him if not for asking him to do something about it? Which implies that Mary knows that he has the power to do something about it. And I think what Jesus is saying is, do you understand if, you, if I do this, do you understand where this is leading? Mm -hmm. Do you understand where this is going? Do you understand what this ushers in? Do you remember that sword that's going to pierce your heart? Do you remember all of the things that you have held in your heart that we're about to open the door to? And she says, uh, he says, my hour has not yet come. His hour throughout the whole gospel of John is going to be used to refer to his crucifixion, to his passion. It has not yet come. But he's saying, I think if I do this, it's going to begin to hasten that hour. And are we ready for that? Uh, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Which is, again, good advice, good advice in prayer. right? And good advice for a queen mother. Do whatever the king tells you. Mm -hmm. um, it's the ushering in of Jesus' ministry. It's the ushering in of the crucifixion. It's the ushering in of the things that Mary has been holding in her mm -hmm. heart. But the last thing I want to say about this, and then we can move on. The six stone jars... We just have to say a word about here. We were talking about this over lunch earlier. The six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification. 
the Jewish tradition, um, the Old Testament Jewish tradition, even modern day Judaism has a lot to do with ritual washing, ritual hand washing, ritual cleansing, which is usually done before sacrifice or before vows are made in this case or something Mm -hmm. like this. And the water, I mean, what you have the water there for is a kind of ritual purification of the stain of sin, right? So that the priest or those offering can be made pure to go before the Lord or go before the altar or before the tabernacle or whatever it is. That's why the rites of purification are done. Uh, even in many parts of the world, before a synagogue is built, they would always build the mikvah bath first because the cleansing is so so crucial. For those that are not familiar, a mikvah is a like a cleansing pool. Yeah, kind of like a baptismal yeah. font in a, in a certain analogous way. But in other words, what that means is that these six stone jars there are representing the stain of sin that needs to be cleansed. Mm-hmm. They're six stone jars of death in a certain sense. That's what the water is doing. And what Jesus is going to do is transform the six stone jars of the water, which will cleanse us from our death, into the symbol of celebration, into the symbol of, into wine. He'll take the ritual water, which is used to cleanse us, at least in a superficial way, of our darkness and the things that we carry, Jesus will utterly transform those things so that the symbols of purification will become the symbols of the sacraments. Now, with the time that we have, we got to spend some time here on uh, uh, Christ's passion and death, which is probably one of the more obvious things as far as her becoming part of our lives yeah, that's and right. what Jesus expects of John with her. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, when Jesus is on the cross, tragically, it's, it's such a heartbreaking story. Most of his followers have abandoned him. By the time you get to the cross, most of them probably in the garden and then when the events that lead on, mm-hmm. Peter hangs around for a little bit, observes the, the sham trial that's going on at the high priest's house, but then he even turns tail, he jets, and by the time that you actually have Jesus being crucified, all that remain are Mary herself, the Blessed Mother. John, he is, is there with her. Uh, Mary Magdalene is present, and I believe it's Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Only those four are left, mm-hmm. uh, along with some Roman centurions and some onlookers. Yeah. And right before Jesus dies, he says to John, his beloved disciple, and to his mother, he says, Behold, this is now your son. And to the son, this is now your mother. Which, there's been a lot of ink spilled on that. that the meaning of that. John, mm-hmm. it does seem, according to tradition, does take Mary into his home and cares for her. Right. But it also, he represents all of us as disciples, all of the church, who will now have Mary as our mother. And that private life of Jesus and his family now transitions in a certain sense into the public life of the church. Which is why, you know, there was, I was reflecting earlier on um, the moment of Pentecost, uh, where after the resurrection and after the ascension into heaven, Jesus, uh, rather Mary and the apostles and the brethren and the women, they're all gathered in the room where Pentecost will happen. And Mary, it says, will receive the Holy Spirit. You might ask, well, didn't she already receive the Holy Spirit prior to that? Like, didn't the Holy Spirit, you know, come upon her and overshadow her when she gave birth to Jesus? And John Paul II, right, and I believe it's one of his Wednesday audiences, he reflects on this, that now there's a change vocationally with Mary. Now she's not just raising Jesus, now she becomes the mother of the entirety of the church. And so there is a renewal of the Holy Spirit in her so that now she can take on this new role of motherhood mm-hmm. in mothering all of us. I think it's what... such a beautiful thing at the cross, you know, when 
when Jesus says to John, behold your mother, and most theologians would agree that what happens at the cross is universal. Yeah, it's for yeah, us as, sure. as well. Not just John right. alone. It's both. It's particular yeah. and universal, yeah, which is yeah. beautiful. And so it's, it's, for, it's for us that Jesus, at the point of his passion, at the point of the lowest that you can get, he is stripped naked. Yeah. He is nailed to a piece of wood. Yeah. Uh, he is mocked. He is shamed. He is... Uh, take, taking on our suffering. And what does he do at that point? He's got two things on his mind. One is mom, yeah. and the other is us. is us. And he's saying, Mom, there, you know, John. Mom, your, church, church, yeah, mom. Yeah, yeah. Work it out. <laughs> with, with, yeah. Yeah. Be, with, be with one another. It's such a tender moment, though, yeah. of Jesus on the cross saying, yeah. John, behold your mother yeah. and mom. Behold your son there. And I think to myself so many times, there she was at the foot of the cross. She has an intercessory role. She's an advocate for God's people. And so we have to ask ourselves the same question. Is she at the foot of your cross? If she was at the foot of his cross, who better to have at the foot of my cross than the very one who stood at his his cross? And to me, that is so powerful that I have the opportunity to say, Blessed Virgin Mary, my mother, help me, pray for me, intercede for me. That is, that is a beautiful thing. That's a gift. We come to the end of it, but not really the end of it because we deal with the, the uh, assumption right. of right. Mary. Now, that's kind of confusing to people yeah, a little absolutely. bit. Did, did she, was she assumed? Was it spiritual? Did she just fall asleep? Yeah. There's so many different opinions out there. There are, and we don't know because yeah. we none of us were there. Uh, in the church, the tradition is relatively silent on how it happened. Not that it happened, but exactly how. And traditionally, the Eastern church tends to tend more toward what we call the Dormition, that she sort of fell asleep mm-hmm. and then was taken. The Western church is sort of leaned toward the being taken up in a, in a more... Yeah, uh, um, con- while she was awake, sort of a thing. I, I don't know. Um, mm. There's a, there's a logic though to this teaching of the church that's very beautiful because I struggled with this one for a long time. Um, the uh, I think the first thing to say is the difference between ascension and assumption. Ascension, she did not ascend. Ascension implies its own power. Jesus ascends because of who he is by his own power to heaven. She is passively assumed. She is taken just like Jesus saves her to make her immaculate. Mm-hmm. She didn't do that herself. She is assumed by Jesus. And the logic to it is this. If she is preserved, she's saved from the stain of original sin. What is one of the, the fallouts, one of the ramifications of the stain of original sin? It's that our bodies corrupt and die. Now, I think in Mary, we have an insight perhaps into what Adam and Eve would have been like at the end of their earthly life had they not fallen into that sin. I don't think we would have all simply lived on this earth forever, but they would have sort of gone. I, I like the dormition because I like the idea of just kind of passing into a sleep and then being mm-hmm. taken into God's throne room. And that's a beautiful church, vision. by the way, right right there yes. in, in Jerusalem. Yeah, that's right. Church yeah. of the dormition. The, the dormition, German right. church is beautiful. That's right. Wow. But but Mary's assumption has everything to do with Jesus saving Mary from original sin. Yeah. It's not a made-up teaching. It doesn't, you know, just because we really like her and we wanted another thing to apply to her. But mm-hmm. the Catholic Church and the Catholic theology is nothing if not consistent. 
and this is only because of this. Yeah. She is assumed because she had to be. It's 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 appropriate that her body does not fall into the same corruption. Well, you have days. done a phenomenal job of bringing us through the life of Thanks, Mary. At all these, it's a hard thing to do. Go, it's go, a lot. It's go a lot through of stuff. all of these various uh, various points, and I do hope that that this is helpful for you in understanding Mary and. And uh, she's our mother. She's been given to us. And I would just really encourage you to, to open your heart up and say, you know, Lord Jesus, if you have given your mother to me, help me to understand it. Help me to have an open heart uh, to this because I need all I can get. I need an intercessor. I need an advocate. I need a model. I need someone at the foot of my cross as well. We're going to take a break when we come back. Uh, I want to go into a little bit of how you study the Bible, okay. you know, and that Bible looks like it's got some miles on it. It's we'll talk about miles. we'll talk about that in a minute and find your favorite verse and who you uh, like most in the in the Bible. Located in Champion, Wisconsin, the National Shrine of Our Lady of Champion is an international pilgrimage destination for the faithful to deepen their relationship with Jesus through the Blessed Virgin Mary. In 1859, the Blessed Mother visited a Belgian immigrant woman named Adele Bryce, identifying herself as the Queen of Heaven, and instructing Adele to offer her communion for the conversion of sinners and to teach the children what they should know for salvation. To this day, the National Shrine preserves the hallowed ground where the Blessed Mother appeared, offering a refuge for those seeking peace and spiritual healing. To learn more about Our Lady's apparition in Champion or to plan your visit to the shrine, visit championshrine.org. Tell me what you do on a regular basis to stay physically and, and spiritually fit. Yeah, well, I, um, I'm embarrassed to say this, and this is going to sound oversimplistic. Perhaps. I don't know what it's going to sound, but I realized a fault, a, a really dire fault in my own teaching a while ago, maybe a year ago or something. And I've realized it on and off, but you know, I, I assume you're like, man, we, we, we're Bible guys. And I've got you know, a bunch of different versions of the Bible and translations and then shelves and shelves of commentaries and things the saints have said and so many books about the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I spend so much time prepping for classes on the Bible by reading books about the Bible, mm -hmm. which is important. We have sure. to know different perspectives and language. There's, there's a lot to know. But I realize that I spend... Um, I had been spending an embarrassingly small amount of time just reading the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've taken it as, a, again, it's nothing huge, it's nothing um, you know, mind-blowing, but if I'm going to teach on a particular passage of the Bible or a chapter or a couple of the Bible, I will just spend some time. I usually wake up at 5 in the morning and get some quiet time before the rest of the family wakes up, and I'll sit down with my Bible and I'll just read it, um, which, again, doesn't sound like that big of a deal, but I spent so much time yeah. reading about the Bible and not reading the Bible. For yourself. For myself, yeah. yeah. And for my teaching. I become a better teacher when I'm just actually in the Word of God. Right. Um, which has been uh, a bit of a discipline I've had to give myself of having a little bit of extra time, not just to go over notes, not just to read commentaries, mm -hmm. but just to sit down with a few chapters, whatever, especially if I'm going to be teaching it. it. In particular, if I'm going to be teaching it, mm -hmm. I have to be sitting down and slowly reading through those, giving myself enough time that I can pause on a line or pause on a sentence. It's not, you know, particularly meditative, but it just... 
to take time with it, to sort of let yourself stretch out and breathe in the Word of God, particularly mm-hmm. if it's stuff that you've read before, studied before, to just allow it to be new, that, that God says, my Word is new every morning, and it, my mercies are new every morning, I guess. Yeah. But the Word of God is new all the time sure. as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've tried to just take time to not have an agenda with studying my Bible, but just let myself kind soak of in it. soak in it and wander Let God speak it. to you. Yeah. So you do you have a bunch of Bibles, or do you have one that you like to use a lot? Or? This is the one that I, I. This is my go-to. Like if I'm going to teach it, it's it's. You can see it's what parts of it are world? disintegrating. It's I have another version of this exact same Bible uh-huh. that I can use if you know if if it can I just little, yeah it, I, won't, I won't ruin it <laughs> okay. any more than it is. It's it's been through a lot. A, a good deal of Genesis is missing on that. Yeah. So what do you do when you have to teach Genesis? I have my backup. One. Yeah, I have is, my backup. Is Genesis one somewhere in here? No. It, part of the pages. I don't know. Let me just show that to the camera. This is a Bible with, looks like leprosy. It's got some, <laughs> Something's going Jesus on in here. That. that is really wild. Yeah. So if I said to you, turn to Genesis one, you I, have I a, wouldn't be able to. You would have a, a... But like I said, I've got my backup. Of the same version. That's really <laughs> wild. That's really well, wild. Well, it's been through it with me. Okay, it's, so do you mark your Bible? That's what we ask every one of our guests. Do you mark your Bible? Do you? I do. It's, again, it's, there's not much of a rhyme or reason to it. Like, there's passages, you know, that are, that are marked more than others and underlines and arrows and little, you know, things in the margin here and there. Show our friends that one. There's not, there's not a color coding to this. It was... Again, uh-huh. it's if I had a red pen that day, I underlined it in red, and if I had a blue one that particular day, I that seems it in to blue. be consistent with everybody. On oh, the good. Shows. That's whatever good. pen I have, because I'm like, well, because some people are they're methodical, and I've seen them color coded, and everything is okay. Which is, I, I wish I could do that, but part of it is I really do like to sit down with my Bible. If something strikes me, or yeah. something, I, I want to just jot it down. Well, I, I start off it. with a good plan, and I end up with. Your plan. Uh, well, you know, yeah, so it, my, it looks like you used to be organized, Jeff, but to somewhere some, along the some, line. You had a good intention. One character in there who you most identify with. I don't know if I most identify with him, but I want to identify with him. Okay. I want to be more like him. And it's it's not a, Can't be Jesus or Mary. It's not Jesus or Mary. It's a guy named Ananias. Really? Yeah. I I think That's about Ananias a lot. We've never had that one before. Really? I, I think about Ananias a lot. And... Uh, the reason for it is that he shows up in, uh, there's a, a couple of different Ananias in the New Testament. Yeah, which one, one are you talking the about? The one I'm talking about, the, he's the second one. He's in Acts chapter 9. Okay. He's a guy who lives up in Damascus. He's a follower of Jesus. We know virtually nothing about him. We don't know his background. We don't know what happens after his story. But as Saul is on the road up to Damascus yeah. going to slaughter Christians, <laughs> he is thrown to the ground. Remember, he's he's blinded. His world is flipped upside down, uh-huh. and the Holy Spirit comes to a guy named Ananias, who, again, all we know is he's a disciple. Right. says, hey, I want you to go seek out this Saul. And Ananias says, Say who? he's literally the one who's going to kill me. Like, I know who this guy is. I know that what he's coming for. And Ananias, if it, if it wasn't for an Ananias, there wouldn't be a St. Paul. Because mm-hmm. Ananias was the one who had the courage and the guts and the almost like Mary, the saying, be it done unto me according to your word. I'll go out to this guy I'm pretty sure is going to kill me. That's a good insight. I like that. And we can all be an Ananias. Not everybody can be a Paul, you know, mm-hmm. um, but I think we can all 
look for the ways in which the Holy Spirit is asking us to go where it's really uncomfortable or say yes to something that we really don't want to do. Can you imagine do. the thrill of seeing this, the conversion of the student of Gamaliel? Gamaliel is the grandson of Hillel. Yeah. And this guy yeah. has came here to kill me and yes. now he's preaching. Right. And, wow. and because Ananias had the guts yeah. to listen to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I love Ananias. I want to be like you. He had a t-shirt. I'm the one that prayed for Paul. <laughs> <I'm>, yeah, <laughs> I opened the door. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. My favorite passage, and it's, um, it's just always brought me a great deal of comfort. And uh, I, I kind of fell for it in high school as a young kid who was coming to know Jesus sort of for the first time. Um, I was shown this passage. Uh, there was a song in my Protestant church about this. Uh, and then as time went on, it, it grew in, in its depth of meaning for me. And I'll just read it really quick and I'll say a, a very short anecdote about it. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, at the very end of Paul's kind of climactic section about what is, who is the Christ and what has he done. It says, again, after saying all of his incredible, deep, um, nuanced theology of how Jesus has trans transformed everything, he says, what shall we say to this? So what's our response? So what? If God is for us, who can be against us? And if he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not also give us all things? Who can bring any charge to God's elect? And these are people who are being persecuted for following Jesus. Who can bring any charge against God, God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It's Jesus Christ who died, yet, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who shall intercede for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we're being killed all day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the longest I know. verse in the Bible. I couldn't shorten it. it, it before the show, I was like, well, should I, I just do a had, chunk of it? I think it, you it's... thought I said the longest, uh, your favorite chapter. I, it's not a chapter. It's a couple verses. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, it's only actually five. In <laughs> Rome, you've been to the catacombs, I assume, yeah. in Rome. I think it's in St. Calixtus, and I don't remember exactly where I was. I saw it back in college. There is some graffiti, uh, ancient graffiti written on the, the front of a tomb uh, of an ancient Christian from the first century who was, it was a little girl, I believe, who was fed to the lions in, in the Colosseum. And someone had scrawled over her tomb the Greek word Nike, right, which is the, the, the shoe company, right, mm -hmm. which means to conquer. Um, and this little girl who was martyred for refusal to deny Jesus, someone in the first century had the good sense to scrawl Nike across her tomb, which reminds me of this, that in all of these things, no matter what happens to us in this life, no matter what anyone does to us, no matter what crosses we have to bear, we are more than conquerors, more than mm -hmm. Nike, through Christ who loved us. And I loved it as early as the first century someone recognized that. Must have been an incredible girl. Yeah. Yeah. She was a shoe in to be a saint. Oh, jeez. I knew it was coming. I didn't know what it was going to be then. Okay. <laughs> should we take some questions? Yes, I think we should. All right. Sherry asks, is Revelation 12 mm. talking about Mary? If so, why is she portrayed as experiencing pain in childbirth? I thought that she did not experience labor pains. Now, there's a long question. That, that's a, that is a question that's been around for a long time. And the idea... Uh, Scott, is you know as well as I do, uh, that the the question comes from: Isn't pain the result of original sin? Right. 
pain and childbirth specifically. Pain and childbirth, yeah, yeah. And, and and suffering as as uh, Adam would, you know, work with uh, toil, and, yeah, toil on the ground, the work, and and then the the Eve would have these pains in in childbirth, right. and that's related to original sin. So could she possibly have experienced pain? Hmm. And I think the church has has said quite a bit about it in the past, but it's still people talk about it. Yeah, there's still a little room for debate. It's not something that's been de declared as a dogma. Um, there's lots of church tradition around it. Um, yeah, I think what's safe to say, I, I, I can get the logic that she would not have experienced, because she was saved from the stain of original sin, which is what Eve, uh, we are Eve, Eve's ancestry to us, she would not have had childbirth in the same way that the rest of us, well, I haven't given childbirth, but the, the same way that, that uh, you know, our, our mothers and our wives experience mm -hmm. childbirth. But there is still a pain that's involved in that process. And I think Revelation is even looking a little bit broader than that because, mm -hmm. of course, we know that a sword will pierce her heart because of the child that she's given birth to. We Which know that there is pain. pain. A real kind of pain. Yeah. No, it's a different kind of pain, and I don't know exactly where those kinds of pain interact with each other, but, but we're not saying that because she experiences childbirth differently than Eve would have, that, that means there's no pain whatsoever and everything's awesome and perfect for Mary and she doesn't experience any of that. No, that's not what we mean because we know she probably experiences more hardship and pain and a sword piercing her heart than the rest of us do because of her clarity of vision in the spiritual life because she's not bogged down with the weight of original sin. So there is a kind of pain. There is a kind of pain with what is going to happen to her son. Again, what's actually happening at the moment that she gives birth to Jesus, I'm not sure. Um, I think that there's an interesting room for debate there, uh, but there certainly is pain involved in the entirety of the process of being mother of the Redeemer. All right, so Barry is asking, how should I understand the phrase, oh, I like this, he's gonna bring Joseph into it now. Oh, good. Then he, Joseph, took her, Mary, but he did not know her until the child was born. At first reading this, reading this, I was shocked and thought, how could this be? I thought Mary stayed a virgin all life long. Now that that's pretty. That's a common question when you talk to to Protestant friends, yeah. you know, and they'll say, "Well, you know, she was a virgin until." Until, yeah, yeah. yeah and I think there's a grammatical answer to this that the word "until" doesn't necessitate that something happened thereafter. You could say that, you know, so and so was a curmudgeon until the day he died. It doesn't mean that he changed at some point or that mm -hmm. ceased to be the case afterwards. Yeah. It's simply a turn of phrase. So. Um, it's not, the until grammatically isn't doing anything one way or the other. It's not a proof text one way or the other. It simply says, speaks about her virginal, uh, virginal identity. Um, and that's where the tradition of the church has to step in and say, okay, well, let's look at scripture, let's look at tradition, and let's see what is most fitting and appropriate about who Mary is. And if she is the Ark of the Covenant, if she is the new tabernacle, then there's a certain inappropriateness to other children being born in that tabernacle. And there's a certain, um, it, it, it doesn't seem quite as fitting yeah. for her to have those other sorts of relationships. Now, the retort oftentimes from our Protestant friends will be, well, you know, scriptures talk about the brothers of Jesus, right? And of course, first of all, the, the word Adelphoi in Greek is pretty ambiguous. It can, it, Jesus refers to his own apostles as brethren, right? It's a, it's a vague term. Um, 
it doesn't necessitate that Jesus had biological brothers. Right. He could have had cousins. He could have had half brothers mm -hmm. and sisters. Certainly, again, it's sort of an argument from silence. Um, and so, because that text, we can't wrench it out of context and say, "Well, it says this, therefore it means this." In English, in 2023, we have to be a little more nuanced and say, "Well, what does the tradition say? What does right. the scripture say?" And what the scripture understands about who Mary is says something much wider and broader and more beautiful about why it's fitting that she is virginal all of her life mm -hmm. than simply a proof text. Because the until yeah. doesn't necessarily do anything. Well, wow, it's been good to talk to you about this. I, I didn't anticipate it would be uh, so much fun. Well, not that... <laughs> not a that, lot. Not, not that... <laughs> but I mean, it's fun in terms of... Of of sticking to to the uh, the tour of Mary yeah. in the messianic fulfillment, yeah. you're always fun. But to, <laughs> but to stick to that topic all the way through, again, as we as we talk about the Blessed Virgin Mary, we have learned also so much about Jesus. And that's the whole point. In right? She it. points us to Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's so good. It's good to work with you Thanks, and um, blessings on all of your work in Denver Likewise. at the St. John Vianney. Uh, seminary, Thank you. and uh, you come highly recommended. Thank you're, you. I'm, you're a good teacher, and this was a lot of fun. Would you mind leading us in a closing prayer? I would love that. I'd be honored. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Jesus, you gave us a mother that we may have recourse to you, that we may have recourse to you through. And we pray in thanksgiving uh, for the gift of your redemption, for the gift of being able to walk through the story. And we pray desperately that we will be good stewards with the story, with the words, with the narrative that has been handed down to us, with these teachings, that we may teach them well to our children, to the people you put in our lives, that we may not forget the riches that you've handed on to us. We pray that your mother would be a mother to us, that she would be a guide to us, that she would pray for us, um, and that she would show us more clearly your face. And so we pray together, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for watching. If you would like to see more amazing content on the Bible, be sure to like and subscribe.